The story is told of a monk who joined a special Catholic order, the Order of Silence. He had a small concession made to him. Every ten years he could say two words. So after ten years of being a monk, the head monk called him in and said, ten years have gone by, you have two words. He said, bed hard. Bed hard. Two words. He said, back to your cell. So he went back to his cell. Another ten years went by. The head monk called him in and said, ten years have gone by, this is now twenty years, you have another two words. He said, what are the two words? The monk said, food cold. <laughs> the head monk said, back to work, my son. Another ten years went past. The head monk called him in, it's now thirty years. He said, you've had thirty years, another ten years have gone by. You have another two words. What are they? He said, I quit. <laughs> the head monk said, well, we've been expecting it. All you've done since you've been here is complain. <laughs> now, he may have had a reason to complain and maybe a reason to quit. But I want to tell you, my friends, God's true children don't complain and they don't quit when the going gets hard. And let me tell you why God's children don't complain and why they don't quit. Because God's children have got a work to do in preaching the everlasting gospel and in preparing men and women for the great crisis that is coming on the world. And there's another reason why God's people are not complainers and why they're not quitters. It is because they're looking forward to going to heaven with Jesus Christ. And when you're looking forward to that blessed reality of going to heaven with Jesus, my friend, you won't be a complainer and you won't be a quitter. History commences and closes with religious conflict. Today's topic is the final test, the rule of the Antichrist and the mark of the beast. Please take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 13 verses 14 through to 17. Dear hearts and gentle people, Revelation chapter 13, Revelation 13 verses 14 through to 17. And I want you to notice the words of the apocalypse as inspired by our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13, and uh, we will start with verse 13. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of man. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast. You notice this? He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone small and great, 
rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Today we're going to talk about the essence of the mark of the beast. Many serious Bible scholars believe that we are approaching the time of the final crisis when the mark of the beast is going to be forced upon the world, the, t uh, the, the time of trouble, as it is called in the scriptures. Ancient Bible prophets predicted the final events in the history of planet Earth. I want to point out to you that there's a book in the Bible, the book of Matthew, that contains the chapter, Matthew 24, which is called by theologians the little apocalypse, because everything that is written in the Apocalypse or the book of Revelation grows out of the discourse of Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olives as recorded in Matthew 24. I want you now to turn to this chapter because Matthew 24 is the chapter that introduces the topic of the Mark of the Beast. Matthew 24 and verses 3 to 15. I want you to notice the most important signs here. Matthew 24, once again, the little apocalypse upon which the book of Revelation is based. Verse 3, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of the birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So here our Lord gives us a description of the spiritual, religious, moral, and political conditions that will exist during that time that is called in Holy Scripture, the time of the end. Jesus said, in the time of the end, the time of the mark of the beast and the last great world boycott, the rise of the Antichrist, there will be worldwide conflicts, nation against nation, Jesus said that there would be great disasters, natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, and pestilences. Jesus said there would be spiritual delusions, and the spiritual delusions would be so subtle as to deceive, if it were possible, even the very elect. But Jesus did say something very positive. He said, in spite of all the forces of hell, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Nothing, my friend, can stop the tide from coming in, and nothing can stop the preaching of the everlasting gospel in all the world. 
Can I tell you something today? Cuba is opening its doors after many years. And China is about to open her doors, I believe, to the ambassadors of the gospel. If I had told you standing here in this church 10 years ago that we would have gone to Russia and up to this point of time preached to two and a half million people, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of communists, thousands of officers of the KGB, and seen tens of thousands of unbelievers come to Christ in the Soviet Union, you would have said, I don't think so. I might have said the same. But Jesus said, in the context of the preaching of the last message to the world, the abomination of desolation will stand in the holy place. And Jesus said, and we read the words a moment ago, there will be persecution. He said many will turn away from the faith and they will betray one another and they will hate each other. And the world will see a time of trouble such as was not, not since there was a nation. I ask you, are you ready for this time of trouble? How can I be ready? How can you be ready? That is the purpose of this talk. The mark of the beast is not as simple as some of us think. Some of us have been brought up to believe basically the members of certain churches will get the mark of the beast because of conformity to certain customs. I'm here to tell you today, every person is a candidate for the mark of the beast unless he knows Christ and the truth. And we do not eliminate any church, including our own church, because we will see today that the mark of the beast is far more than outward issues. I want you to notice now the beast. Would you come to Revelation 13, verse 1 and 2? Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1 and 2. And the dragon stood on the shore of the sea. And I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns. On each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard and had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast Notice these words, his power and his throne and his great authority. This beast, a Bible scholar will quickly recognize, is a composite beast. This beast is representative of all the powers in history, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and then pagan Rome, through which the real Antichrist has ruled. Who is the beast? The beast is Lucifer but working through his ambassadors. Is there a real Lucifer? We are told in Holy Scripture that he is a real living personality, as real as any person here in this church, the master of lies and the master of deception and the master of the mark of the beast. Would you please notice Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14? Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12 to 14. And here we have a description of his infernal majesty. How you've fallen from heaven, 
O morning star, son of dawn. And uh, the original Hebrew words say, Lucifer, you've been cast down to the earth. You once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. You know where sin started, my friend? Can you notice where sin starts? Sin is eye trouble. Sin is lack of seeing God and seeing self. I, 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 sin and rebellion always starts in self-seeking. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountains. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Scripture tells me that the beast or the Antichrist and listen carefully to this, is the great pretender. Did you hear this? The great antichrist is the great pretender. He is the great counterfeiter. As one theologian said when I was listening to him this morning, most religion is bad. Only the religion that came from God can lead to God. And the true religion is the, is the religion of the man hanging on the cross. But this great personality is the great pretender. And generally he lurks in the garb and the sanctimonious clothing of religion and piety. We're told that the beast was given his power and his authority and his throne. He received it from the dragon. Can you understand how this is a great counterfeit? Because in Scripture, God the Father gives to His Son the throne and the power and all the authority. But this power, my friend, puts Himself in the place of God because He is the great counterfeiter. He is the great pretender. As you read the book of Revelation, you'll find it's a book of counterfeits and a book of truth. You read there the Blessed Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you read there of the Antichrist Trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. For everything that God has, Satan has a counterfeit, my friend, and the mark of the beast is the counterfeit to the mark of God, as we will discover. Like Jesus, who preached and taught for 1260 days, so we are told that the Antichrist or the beast rules for 1260 days. Like Jesus, the Antichrist receives a deadly wound. And like Jesus, the Antichrist, after receiving the deadly wound and going down into the bottomless pit, into the grave, is resurrected. And he says, everything that God can do, I can do better. He trades in lies. And that is why Jesus said, you are of your father the devil. And he was a liar from the beginning and abode not in the truth. The Antichrist, my friend, is the original and the consummate deceiver and the consummate liar. He is intolerant and persecuting. 
The Bible says that the beast wears out the saints of the Most High. It was given unto him, the Bible says, to rule over the whole world for 1260 days. And then he took peace from the earth as he trampled under his feet the saints of God. Thus he is intolerant and persecuting. May I tell you, listen to this carefully, wherever the spirit of intolerance and lying exists, there is the spirit and the essence of Antichrist. Antichrist, my friend, is more than an organization. Do you hear me? Antichrist is more than an organization. You can't say, there is Antichrist. Antichrist is more than an organization. Antichrist is a rebellion against God. It is the spirit of iniquity. It is the spirit of lying. It is the spirit of persecution and intolerance. When you read Holy Scripture, particularly the prophecies of Daniel chapter 7, chapter 8, Revelation 12, 13 and 14, and Revelation chapter 17 and 18, you'll find that the Antichrist demands the surrender of the will and the conscience and thus demands worship. And that is why true Christian believers Rejoice in the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. Antichrist says, I stand between you and God. I stand in the place of God. And if you want to come to God, you must come through me. Through my ritual and through my mediation. The Protestant reformers and a vast company of earnest Roman Catholic scholars have taught the great truth that there is no veil left today in the heavenly sanctuary and I can go through the merits of Jesus into the very presence of God without an earthly intercessor. I do not need, my friend, an earthly intercessor. I have my Christ and Christ is enough. But the Antichrist teaches people to look to a system of infallibility rather than looking to the living Christ. He demands idolatry. Listen to me. God said, and Jesus said it, repeated it, amplified it. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Whatever we put in the place of God, whether it is wealth or some ecclesiastical system or some earthly hierarchy, that becomes, my friend, Antichrist. Because there is only one Christ. And God said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Most scholars, or many scholars, believe that the prophecy of the Antichrist was fulfilled partially at least in the church of the Middle Ages. That is when church and state became joined together in an unholy alliance. And I want to read to you from a great old commentator, Dr. Grattan Ganesh. He wrote a long time ago, but his words are true. 
The apocalypse was written at the time of a bloody heathen persecution which arose against Christianity. Its aim is a thoroughly practical one, being designed to comfort and animate the faint and desponding minds of believers. Primarily the subject of discourse must be that persecuting power, under the oppression of which the church sighed during the time then present and other powers as in the nearer and the more distant future had the same root as that. What he is saying, my friend, is that there was a time when God comforted his church by these revelations so that the church might endure the wrath of the Antichrist. And the church, the true church of God in the Middle Ages, took comfort from these prophecies as will the church in the, la in the last days. He says, let me inquire, can one suggest any other power in which all these marks or the majority of them meet? They are eight in number and definite in character. The prophecy lays its finger on the place where we find the great enemy, Rome. On the point of time in the course of history at which we may expect to see him arise, the division of the Roman territory into a commonwealth of kingdoms, it specifies the nature of the power, politico-ecclesiastical, its character, blasphemously self-exacting, lawless, and persecuting. It measures its duration 1260 years and specifies its doom. To have its dominion gradually consumed and taken away and then to be suddenly destroyed forever because of its blasphemous assumptions by the epiphany and glory of the Son of Man introducing the kingdom of God on earth. The proof that the medieval church is the power intended is strictly cumulative. If it answers if it answered to one of these indications, there would be a slight presumption against it. If to several, a strong one. If to the majority, an overwhelming one. While if it answers to all, then the proof that it is the power intended becomes to candid minds irresistible. There is not a single clause in the prophecy that cannot be proved to fit the church of the Middle Ages exactly, except the last, which is yet still to be fulfilled. Rome, which in her pagan phase defiled and destroyed the literal temple of God at Jerusalem, later on defiled and destroyed the antitypical spiritual temple of God, the Christian church. Was it not worthy of God to warn that church beforehand of the coming of this dreadful anti-Christian power and to cheer her, cheer her in all the suffering she would have to endure from its tyranny? by a knowledge of the issues of the great and terrible drama? Was it not right that the Roman power should occupy as paramount a place on the page of Scripture as it has actually done on the page of history? The 18 Christian centuries lay open before the eye of the omniscient God, and no figure stood out so prominently in all their long course as that of the great Antichrist. The pen of inspiration sketched him in a few bold, masterly strokes, and there is no mistaking the portrait. So, historically commentators said these verses had a remarkable application in the persecutions of the church of the Middle Ages. And having conceded that this is true, let me say this, although this prophecy was fulfilled in the Middle Ages, its consummation 
is still to come. The great work of Antichrist is for the last days. Bible prophecy teaches, and you should understand this, and I preach this sermon today that you and I will be aroused to be ready for the coming time of tribulation. The great fulfillment, I say, is still to come. It was fulfilled back in the Middle Ages. It will be consummated in the last days. There will come a union of apostate religious powers with apostate church powers. Will only one church be involved? No, my friend, wherever the spirit of Antichrist exists, there will be the mark of the beast. There will be a time of persecution, a persecution of those who refuse to worship the beast. The Bible says almost the whole world will be deceived to submit to the beast. Will you and will I? These are questions that we need to ponder seriously today. I want you now to turn to Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 to 17, dear hearts. Revelation 13 and verses 11 through to 17. As we talk about the coming of the great Antichrist in the last days. Read it again. Revelation 13, 13 through to 17. Now start at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like who? Like a lamb, and the lamb represents Jesus. So this is a masquerading Christian power. Verse 13, he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark which is the name of the beast, or the number of his name. He is called the lamb-like beast because he is the counterfeit Christ. He is called the lamb-like beast because when he comes, he does not come in ferocity, but he comes as the prince of peace. And just as Elijah the prophet brought down fire from heaven on earth in the view of all men, so this power is a miracle working power. He is the counterfeit Elijah message. Next Sabbath I speak about the true Elijah. Today the false Elijah with his miracles, his signs and his wonders. One of the most informative and yet one of the most scary passages in Scripture is the prophecy of the coming of the lawless deceiver in 2 Thessalonians 2. I want you please now to turn to it. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 to 12 which describes the coming of of the lawless one. 
we call him the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and onwards. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1 and onwards. Please notice the text. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, uh, report, or let us supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. He says, some are saying that the day of the Lord has already come. That cannot happen because there's a prophecy to happen. He says, verse 3 and onwards, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the, what occurs? The rebellion. You see, Satan is the arch rebel. He works through rebellion. Till the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple. So he sits in the church. You hear that? He sits in the church proclaiming himself to be God. Verse 7, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. It's displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. And in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Now, I believe in miracles, signs, and wonders. I believe that God today is doing miracles. I've seen some of them. I've seen some of the signs. I've seen some of the wonders. But they are not the proof of Christianity. The proof of Christianity is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the proof of Christianity. That God gave his son to die on the cross for me. I do not need a miracle to know that I'm saved. You know why? Because God told me so. And I take his word. I believe in God's word. But I believe in miracles. I believe in signs. And I believe in wonders. And I've seen some of those things. I've seen God do it, I'm telling you. But I also know that this lamb-like beast, this false prophet, this false Elijah is going to work miracle signs and wonders and most people are going to be sucked down the vortex of destruction. The Bible talks about believing the lie. Are you listening to me today? Are you listening to me today? Believing the lie. It is easy to believe the lie because of our fallen sinful human natures. That's why we need Christ. But the Bible says the vast majority of people in the world are going to choose to believe the lie. 
I would suggest to you that now the masses, the vast multitudes in the world, the masses are being prepared to receive the lie. It is taught today by many that truth is unimportant. It's how you feel about it. People say, well, it's how I feel. That is the lie. People are taught, it doesn't matter what happened back there in history. What matters is whether you believe certain things happened or not and how those things make you feel. People are taught that today in universities. That is the lie. It is taught the truth is relative. And people will say, well, truth is different for different people. Truth may be truth for you, but that's not truth for me. Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And his word is the truth, my friend. The truth of God is not subjective. It is not relative. The truth is the truth is the truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The Bible teaches... That we discover truth through the texts of the Bible and by employing the kingly power of reason. Let me say it again. Truth plus reason. Martin Luther summed it up when he said, unless I'm convinced by the texts of the Bible and by reason, I will not recant. So... I believe in the processes, the processes, the processes of the mind in harmony with the word of God. I do not believe in raw emotionalism that overpowers the mind. That's the lie. We had a horrifying example of this. In Germany, before and during the Second World War, when millions of ordinary Germans became mesmerized, the majority became mesmerized by beautiful, evil lies that promised them glory and power. And we know the end result of that terrible experiment Millions and millions of corpses when people gave up truth and believed the lie. John Wesley said in his preface to the book, 44 Sermons, that I've read over and over again and based much of my thinking on, John Wesley said, here I am alone. He said, I sit down in the presence of God. I open my Bible. Then Wesley said, at any cost, give me the truth of God. I say, my friend, give me, give you, at any cost, the truth of God. That is why lying is insidious. Did you know that a person who is a habitual liar is virtually irredeemable? Because a person who is a, an habitual liar lies to himself and will never admit that he's told lies and will justify his course because he is of his father the devil. I say, my friend, of all sins that you and I should spurn, it is lying in all its forms. 
people are being prepared to receive the lie by preachers, by false prophets, by psychologists, by tele television reporters, every person who rejects the clear teachings of the Word of God and who makes a God of himself and of his own ideas. During the last great deception, Satan will impersonate Christ. Did you know that? The man of sin is going to reveal, be revealed. There's a restrainer holding him back. But then somewhere in this world, the cry is going to come out, Christ has appeared! Christ is here! The television cameras will be there by the thousands. And there he will be in his glory. And he'll be saying, Blessed are the peacemakers, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart. He will put forth his hands and he'll lay his hands upon the sick and the dying will stand up and say, Hallelujah, I have been saved. And the world will say, Christ has come. What will you do, my friend? Who will be the undeceived? God has always had a faithful people. We're told in Scripture, when Jesus comes, there are a group of people who shout out, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. You see, the world gets the first Christ, the Antichrist. But the wise who trust in God and not in their senses wait for the true Christ. We've waited for him. We've waited for him, and he will save us. The text we read today says that he forces everyone to receive a mark. My friend, God never forces people. He'll never force you to do what is right. He'll never try to coerce you. God always uses persuasion. Lying is one of the particular tools of the devil. God never uses it. God never forces. God says, here are the facts. Choose my child. Force in the matter of conscience is always wrong. You see, when the church is impotent, she appeals to the strong arm of the state. But God doesn't need Caesar's help. God has given us freedom, my friend. People say, I'm free to do as I wish. It is true to a certain extent. We are free to choose the right, and we are free to believe the lie. God has given us freedom of choice because he loves us. He never forces us. But freedom that chooses the lie becomes no freedom at all. It becomes the worst bondage. It becomes the slavery of the mark. You can be a member of this church and get the mark of the beast. You see, the mark of the beast is the great counterfeit. It's associated with changing the law of God because God has a mark that you can read about, which we won't do now for lack of time. You can read about it in Ezekiel 20.20. An antichrist has a mark and it'll be enforced. Wordsworth, the great commentator, said, the church itself will be betrayed by some in high places. 
in her ministry and by means of their timid and treacherous concessions and compromises, it'll be polluted by a form of worship which will make it execrable in the sight of God and will cause all good men to weep and hide their faces in shame and sorrow and to forsake the courts of the Lord. So the Bible teaches that in the last days there will be a counterfeit mark to the mark of God. And that counterfeit will be enforced by law. I want to answer this question that is so important. How does one receive the mark of the beast? Will one religious group get the mark of the beast and the rest of us go scot-free? I believe that people in all religions will get the mark of the beast. Those who choose the traditions of the church instead of the truths of the Bible. They're marked for the mark of the beast already. Those who honor ecclesiastical institutions more than God's word. Those who say, I will surrender my will and my mind to a group rather than surrender it to God. They're destined for the mark of the beast. Those who believe lies rather than the truth of God, who go by gut feelings rather than by what is true, they will receive the mark of the beast. So God is testing and purifying his people. Those who follow the crowd rather than Christ will get the mark of the beast. You see, you get the mark of the beast when you surrender to the great Antichrist, even though he may appear to be the Son of God, when you sell your soul rather than stand for Christ when you are alone. In the last great conflict, few will stand for Christ, we're told in Scripture. The majority will go the way of the crowd. I tell you, it takes something to be a Christian. And our reaction to Christ and truth today is determining our fate. Yes, there's a great test coming. There will be persecutions. I believe that. I believe there'll be martyrdoms. I believe multitudes will be put to death in this country around the world. I believe there'll be a time of trouble such as never was, but I also believe that there is deliverance for the children of God. The Bible says in a parallel passage in Daniel, at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince that stands for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone that shall be found written in the book. I ask you today, is your name written down in the book? I'm not saying is your name written on the church roll. I don't care. Is your name written down in the book? The Lamb's book. I ask you to do this today. Believe in Christ. Accept Christ. Make him your Lord. Do not follow the crowd, but follow the word of God. If you do that, my friend, you're going to be with Jesus in heaven. Please kneel down as we pray.
May God bless the study of this great prophecy to our minds. Before you pray, think of the issues. The issue is, who has my heart? That's the issue. Will I say I will give everything for Christ and to Christ? I will hold nothing back. I will belong to Christ. Dear Father, today our hearts are moved by the study of this great prophecy. It's a prophecy that concerns the end times. It's a prophecy that talks about the division of the world into two camps. Those who follow the lie, those who are deceived, and those who follow Christ and follow the Word. Our Father, we want to follow Christ and we want to follow the Word today. Come into our hearts. Give us your grace. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. Can I see the hands of all those here today who want their names in the Lamb's Book of Life? Put your hands up high. Put it up high. If you want your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, don't put it up halfway. God only may put a, half your name in. So put your hand up high and say, Yes, Lord, put my name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Fill me with your Spirit. Help me to hold on to Christ in the truth. Dear Father, look at these hands today, people committing themselves to you. Write their names in the Lamb's Book of Life, dear God. Fill them with your grace and your glory and cover them with the blood of Jesus and give them spiritual backbone and give them spiritual insight that they will see the wiles of the devil and they will be on God's side. Our Father, today we want to be on God's side. Protect your church. Protect the community Adventist Fellowship. Thank you for blessing this church. Thank you that as we do what is right, we have nothing to fear. Help us, dear Father, to vow in our hearts today to do what is right and to stand for the right though the heavens fall. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. Fill us with grace and glory and a place at last with the redeemed in the kingdom. For Jesus' sake, amen.